You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual We're all just killing time until tomorrow at noon. And my favorite way to kill time right now, reading about Trump supporters getting arrested, a little LOL scrolling about the January 6th insurrection, a little too bad, so sad scrolling, some bitter ironies, some not so bitter ironies. It's been taking my mind off the near massacre of our elected representatives as they were officiating the results of a free and fair election, which the rioters hoped would be our last. It's also been taking my mind off the damage Trump still might do in his final hours as president. Anyway, I have particularly enjoyed stories about rioters, traitors, insurrectionists, being turned in by angry exes. Like Larry Brock, one of the guys photographed carrying zip ties in the Senate. He was arrested after his ex-wife saw the photos and called the FBI. And then there's Riley June Williams. She broke into Nancy Pelosi's office and is alleged to have stolen a laptop that she is further alleged to have tried to sell to the Russians. Riley was spotted on a video by an ex-boyfriend who called the FBI. If your exes are rushing to turn your ass in to the FBI, if they beat your coworkers and appalled family members to the punch, I'm guessing you were just as shitty a partner as you are a patriot. There are also some shitty parents in D.C. Helena Duke is a teenager whose family threw her out for being a lesbian and a liberal. Helena spotted her mom and her aunt and her uncle in a viral video of a crowd of Trump supporters assaulting a black security guard the night before the riots. And Helena ID'd her Trump-supporting family members to the media, and mom lost her job. And then there are the too-bad-so-sad stories, like Ashley Babbitt. She is, she was, the woman who died after getting shot trying to break into the House chamber. She appears to have been leading the mob, hunting for Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. And according to New York Magazine, which did a deep dive into Babbitt's life, her family didn't realize how far she'd gone, even though she had Trump and QAnon flags flying outside her house, and her car was covered with Trump bumper stickers, and she had a Blue Lives Matter flag on her car, too. Blue Lives Matter, terms and conditions apply. Anyway, the most unexpected detail about Babbitt's life is that she was in a poly triad, She and her husband have a live-in mutual girlfriend, according to New York Magazine. A lot of people associate open or poly relationships with liberal and progressive politics. It ain't necessarily so. You meet a lot of Republicans in the organized swinging scene. And a lot of wannabe cucks are conservative men. Jerry Falwell Jr. is not the only one. So I wasn't shocked to learn that at least one of the Trump rioters out there was poly. Also in the too bad, so sad category... Roseanne Boyland, a woman who stormed the Capitol building carrying a don't tread on me flag and appears to have been, sadly, but ironically, trampled to death by the crowd of Trump supporters trying to force their way into the Capitol building to kill our elected representatives. You could say Boyland's fellow rioters took her don't tread on me flag seriously, but not literally. And finally, and this one's my personal favorite, there's the sad, sad, bitterly ironic story of Kevin Greeson. He was one of the old, white, out-of-shape rioters who charged up Pennsylvania Avenue, 1.6 miles from the ellipse to the Capitol building, on Trump's orders. He had a taser tucked in his pants. A taser he presumably planned to use on someone. 
But at some point during the riot, the taser in Greason's pants went off, and that's how he accidentally and repeatedly wound up tasing himself in the balls, which caused him to have a heart attack, which killed him. Very too bad, very too sad. And yes, I know, I know it didn't happen, probably. Snopes, the fact-checking website, says it didn't happen. Greason died at the Capitol after joining the riot. That happened. He was part of the mob that beat one cop to death and injured 50 others. Blue Lives Matter, terms and conditions apply. But Snopes talked to Greason's wife, and she insists he didn't tase himself in the balls. And so Snopes says that didn't happen. Well, as Joseph K. said on Twitter, if you ever find yourself explaining to Snopes that your husband definitely didn't die tasering himself in the balls, you've already lost control of the narrative. And I hate to go full Baltes truther here, but Greason's wife wasn't in D.C. All she knows is that he died of a heart attack storming the Capitol. She doesn't know what happened to his balls right before the heart attack. And she's his wife. She would deny it. Even if it was true, she would deny it, and it almost certainly, definitely, probably is true. I mean, if I died accidentally and repeatedly tasing my own balls, I would hope my husband would have the decency to deny it to Snopes. And come on, with all the straight-up bullshit Trumpers believe, with all the harmful things they allow themselves to believe, from climate change is a hoax to COVID-19 is a hoax, I think we're allowed this one harmless thing. If they can believe Hillary Clinton runs a child sex trafficking ring out of the basement of a pizza parlor located in a building in Washington, D.C. that has no basement, if they can believe Tom Hanks is a cannibal, not just Army Hammer, Tom Hanks too, and that Donald Trump is still going to be president the day after tomorrow and that Ivanka Trump is going to be a U.S. senator one day, why can't we have this guy's balls? So, while I am willing to concede the possibility that it might be true that Kevin Greason didn't die of a heart attack after accidentally tasing himself in the balls, I have to say millions of hardworking, taxpaying Americans believe Greason died of a heart attack after tasing himself in the balls, and our voices will not be silenced. All right, my fellow ball tase truthers, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, Diana Adams comes back on the show. She's a lawyer and mediator who specializes in LGBTQ and polyamorous families. We talk the ins and outs, the legalities of known donor sperm donation, and tackle a couple of other poly questions on the magnum. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan Savage and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm calling in with a quarantine sex success story. Well, kind of. So, I haven't been able to get laid since the beginning of quarantine. I've been very good in staying inside, but uh, this is the longest I've ever gone without anything sexual that wasn't with myself. So, I've been very pent up. I feel like a 13-year-old boy. And the other day, my completely platonic friend asked if I wanted to go on a motorcycle ride. And when we were on it, it felt so good. And I wanted to come so bad, but, you know, he's a platonic friend and I wanted to be respectful. But after an hour ride, we get to the store and I can't help myself. I tell him, like, I want to come on your bike so bad. And being the good friend that he is... He was like, ah, I don't care. 
as long as you don't squirt on my back because it's cold and I don't want to get wet, which I thought I could agree to. And I was actually worried, but I was able to control myself. But I came nine times and it was the strongest orgasms that I think maybe I've ever had. So thank you, Jason. I know you listen to the podcast and uh, you really are a great friend. This one goes out to you, Jason. Thank you for being a friend. All right, we like to start the show with a success story every week, something that worked before we get to what isn't working. If you've got a success story for us that you'd like us to start next week's show with, maybe send it in. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at-risk youth. Uh, I'm calling with an ethical question. Uh, I have an opportunity to kind of jump the line, as it were, and get vaccinated early. Uh, I was in the Moderna clinical trial, and so there's a chance that I already got it. And I've gotten some input from a few friends of mine. Uh, They all say that I should go and get it since I have the opportunity. But I kind of have this nagging feeling that if I get it, that means a nurse or a long-term care worker or, you know, a senior is going to have to wait a day. And, you know, in that day where they're still developing antibodies, you know, they might be exposed and get sick. So, you know, I don't know what the odds of that are. I'm not even sure if someone will have to wait, but, you know, I'm just considering whether or not in general it's ethical for me, healthy 37-year-old who works from home to get a vaccine when there are still healthcare workers and there are still seniors who are, who are waiting on it. You were in a clinical trial. You were a COVID-19 lab rat. You are one of the reasons that we have the vaccine because people like you stepped up and volunteered to be a part of these clinical trials and the development of the Moderna vaccine and the other vaccines. You earned that vaccination. It's good that you're being thoughtful about it, but you're not jumping a line. You earned that vaccination. And we are reading so many news stories about vaccines spoiling on the shelf, not having to be thrown away, having to be discarded because the people that they've been offered to, sometimes healthcare workers and frontline healthcare workers, for some reason aren't availing themselves of the vaccine. So I wouldn't hesitate if a vaccine has been offered to you legitimately to get the vaccination, particularly in your case. Again, you earned it. Thank you so much for stepping up, for volunteering to be a part of these clinical trials. Now go get your ass vaccinated. They're probably, because of the insane way that vaccine distribution is being done right now, they're probably holding back the vaccine that was earmarked for you so that you can come in and get it. Don't let the vaccine that was set aside for you spoil on a shelf while you sit at home wringing your hands, waiting to hear from me or waiting to hear from my listeners, which would mean another week would go by. No, 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 no. Go get vaccinated right now. Anyone that is offered the vaccine through legitimate channels, isn't jumping a line, should immediately get vaccinated. The more people who are vaccinated and the faster, greater numbers of people are vaccinated, the quicker we're going to be through this, the safer we're all going to be. Please, please. Thank you for your service. Thank you for being a volunteer. Now go get your ass vaccinated immediately. Hi, Dan. 
I'm an almost 25-year-old cis-hetero woman living in a mountain state in the West. I've recently been seeing this guy, and it's been really magical and romantic, and it's such a sweet, bright light in the midst of a pandemic to have him come over at night and get lost in each other's eyes and minds and bodies. I feel like I always sabotage relationships when they get to this point for a few reasons. So, and here's one of them. Um, when I was in college, I had a really bad eating disorder, which along with issues with sex and men and body image gave me a weak heart. I get kind of winded when just walking uphill or on hikes. And basically, I'm just really freaked out about going on hikes or doing adventure shit with people since I'm afraid they'll think I'm out of shape, which sucks because I also live in the fittest, most adventure town in the country. I've got a hot athletic body, so I don't look out of shape. But yeah, I definitely can't run as far as a normal person. And I kind of like to stop on hikes. Uh, my current plan is to just avoid ever letting this person see me winded or do anything active with them for fear of judgment. But in the end, that would make me seem weird in itself, probably. And I value honesty as well. I'm so stressed about this and I don't want to mess this one up because I really, really like this person. Um, so I'd appreciate any advice from you or your listeners. Here's what I think you should do. If you really, really like this person, you should give him the opportunity to demonstrate to you whether he's worthy of your affections. And the way you do that is by being honest with him about your weak heart, about the fact that you get winded easily, and about why. I don't think you should disclose these things, these deeply personal things to him immediately or anytime soon. You're not under obligation to disclose your history of eating disorders to a relatively new partner before you've ascertained whether he's someone that you can be that vulnerable with. But at some point, you should tell him. And you need to do that thing that I tell young queer kids to do, which is to not fear your parents' rejection once you're in a safe place and it's safe to come out to them. Not fear your parents' rejection. Make your parents fear yours. Right now, you fear disclosing this to him, sharing this painful stuff from your past with him because you worry he might reject you because you worry he might judge you. You need to flip that on its head. So when you're ready to tell him, when you tell him this, you're telling him one thing about you. His reaction is telling you everything you need to know about him, including whether your early feelings that he was somebody you could see yourself spending your life with were accurate or not. Whether that hunch, that romantic and sexual hunch was correct. And if it wasn't, if he reacts uncharitably, if he shames or judges you, he's not who you thought he was. He's somebody you thought you might really, really like. And in that moment, he's demonstrated to you that he isn't somebody that you can really, really like and isn't someone that deserves you. People ask me all the time, like, at what point? At what date? How long should I have been dating? How many dates should I go on before I tell somebody this? You tell them when you're ready to. You tell them when you're comfortable telling them. You might have to tell him something about being easily winded before you get to that point, before you arrive at that point where you feel that it's right to tell him. You feel comfortable telling him. And right now, you can just tell him, I am easily winded. 
I have a weak heart because of a health challenge in my past. And that's something I want to talk about right now. It was painful. You don't even get into that detail. You just tell them I, I get easily winded. So I can't go hiking. I can't go on long, arduous hikes without a lot of breaks. And then if he wants to go hiking with you, you might have to plan a different kind of hike than you normally go on in the athletic part of the country where you live. So right now, you sound really stressed out because you fear telling him this. You also probably fear what to tell him if he invites you on a fucking hike. What do you tell him? You tell him the bare minimum. And at this stage of the relationship, you aren't obligated to share more than the bare minimum. I get easily winded. If you want to go on a crazy hike, go with friends, come home, tell me about it. If you want to go on a hike with me, let's plan something simple, something flat, and something short, because that's the only kind of hike I can go on. Instead of that first disclosure, I get easily winded, your first test, his first test, not yours, his, whether he deserves you or not. And then three months, six months, nine months down the road, when you are ready to share with him that you had an eating disorder and damaged your heart and that is why you were easily winded, that's when you share that with him. And go into that conversation, that disclosure, not fearing his rejection. Go into that conversation, that disclosure, ready to end things. If you don't get the reaction from him that you deserve and based on everything you know about him so far, you should expect which is a loving, compassionate, understanding reaction. If you get anything else, if you get the opposite, reject him and the relationship. He doesn't deserve you. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. I met this girl recently at a festival and we began sleeping together. I'm lucky enough to be in New Zealand where there are no COVID restrictions as the government's managed to eliminate COVID, uh, hence able to go to festivals legally. Things are going well. We like each other. Uh, got on pretty well, but we were having a conversation the other day, and she brought up a couple of things. Firstly, that she was bi, which is totally fine with me, but secondly, she wouldn't date a guy who was by himself, which was a bit of a red flag, and then also wouldn't date guys that sleep with trans girls that haven't had confirmation surgery, but would sleep with guys that had slept with trans women who had had surgery, because, quote, women, trans women who had surgery with women, those who hadn't weren't, which for me prompted the thoughts of and the expression of uh, that's transphobic, and we had a bit of an argument. I basically said that she should go and read up about it to challenge that assumption. We spoke again a couple of days later, and she mentioned she'd spoken with a number of people who all just told her that it was a preference for her not to want to sleep with trans or, or guys that had slept with trans women who hadn't had surgery. Firstly, is she gaslighting me? And secondly, do I invest more time in to try and talk about this? In my mind, her views is incredibly transphobic. In fact, the, the, the fact that she wouldn't sit with bi guys is, is also, I think, homophobic as well and, and serves to create an issue because a lot of guys that are bi but lean slightly towards women more will like repress that if that's the prevailing culture of a country. So what do you think I do here? Do I cut it? Or um, is there a way that I can bring this up where she can maybe like think about it a bit more? First, jealous. Jealous that you're in New Zealand. Jealous that you have competent leadership there and that you guys have managed to corner the virus and return to normal life. Hopefully the rest of the world will be somewhat close to where New Zealand is now in a year or less. Hopefully not more. 
about this woman. She's not your job. You know, it is really odd when you meet women who are out about being by themselves who will not date or sleep with guys who are openly bisexual. They might wind up sleeping with guys who tell them they're straight because that's what they want to hear or because they're afraid of rejection because other women, even other bi women, have rejected them when they've come out to them as bi. And that's a big problem for a lot of bi guys. There have been a lot of studies that have found worse mental health outcomes for bisexual men as a result of having to be closeted all their lives to hide their bisexuality from their partners. Sometimes these guys don't come into a full awareness of their bisexuality until after they've made a presumably lifelong commitment to an opposite-sex partner. But sometimes bi guys who've tried to be out have been rejected so often that what they take away from those rejections is don't be out, don't take that risk. What you should take away from that rejection by guys is that person didn't deserve you and wasn't the right partner for you. And again, those studies about mental health outcomes for bi guys find that the biggest contributing factor to poor mental health outcomes, high stress, uh, suicidal ideation is being partnered with someone who rejects you for being bisexual. Someone who knows you're bi and hates that about you or someone you know would hate it about you so you never can come out to. So guys, bi guys, when you tell some woman that you're bi and she has a problem with that, you should have a much bigger problem with her and you should get the fuck away from her. And that would be my advice for you here, New Zealand caller. Get the fuck away from this woman. Even setting aside the transphobia, the biphobia itself is disqualifying. And her thing with trans people seems less about the transness and more about people who have penises touching other people who have penises. That that seems to be her big phobia. You hear a lot in swinger land and open relationship, opposite sex couple land about the one penis rule. She seems to have a one penis rule herself. Not that she'll only touch one penis because she can presumably sleep with more than one guy at a time or more than one guy at once so long as they don't come anywhere near each other. But she doesn't want any of the people with penises that she's having sex with, the men that she's having sex with, with penises, to touch anybody else who currently has a penis. Sometimes people who have a preference around sex, around male-female partners, around male-female genitalia will be accused of having a fetish about genitals. I don't think that's accurate. I think somebody can have a legitimate sexual orientation and be a homosexual, just like somebody can be pan or bisexual or straight. But this woman's issue seems to fall under the heading of irrational phobia. She's not just expressing herself about who she's comfortable sleeping with, who she's attracted to in a constructive way that doesn't judge or shame other people. She wants to control the sexual activities of the people that she has slept with to, I don't know, some third or fourth degree. She won't sleep with a guy who slept with a trans woman who didn't get bottom surgery. What if she slept with a guy who slept with a trans woman who got bottom surgery, who slept with a trans woman who hadn't had bottoms? At what point is a guy too tainted his association to some other dick to lose out on the spectacular opportunity to crawl into bed with this woman. Who knows? I don't think you should stick around long enough to find out. She's not worth it. And you are in New Zealand, not under lockdown. So she's not your only option. You can say something to her about it. If you want to on your way out, I don't think it's really going to make much of a difference. And New Zealand's a small country, so maybe you'll run into her again. You might want to factor that in before you decide whether to blow up at her prior to deleting and blocking her phone number. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old cis-hetero female and 
My question is about ending a relationship with the possibility of reconciliation in the future. My partner of over three years just ended our relationship out of the blue. He says this break is not about me, though over the course of our relationship, we've had some difficulties navigating through personality and communication differences, but we had made a lot of progress through couples counseling. What he says he's seeking in this breakup is to have more independence and space in his life so that he can figure out who he is as a person, what makes him happy, and what he wants for his life without any extrinsic influence. I trust him and believe that this is his true motivation for splitting up, and I can really see the value for him to be alone during this formative stage of his life. He's a people pleaser to a fault and is constantly going with the flow to the point of emotional distress. He's never lived alone or been single for any significant amount of time. I always tried to be mindful of this and give him a lot of space in our relationship, but I understand that true independence cannot be achieved within a relationship. I can also see how this opportunity for independence will really be beneficial for me. I've realized how I've been holding myself back from some of my own goals in the comfort of a relationship. The issue is he's still so in love with me and I'm so in love with him We are each other's best friends. We have the same visions for the future, make each other laugh, and we have a deep, loving respect for each other. He said that having any explicit expectation of getting back together after some predetermined period of time will not really allow him to achieve the state of aloneness that he needs. But he also doesn't want to share life with anyone else, and us rekindling after this period of growth would be the ideal outcome for him. He just doesn't want to lead me on or string me along with any false hope because he can't say with 100% certainty that after the break, he'll feel the same way. So this may just be a simple right person, wrong time situation, but that seems like a sad and unsatisfying end to our relationship. I'm wondering how to reconcile the dichotomy between us being mutually benefited from some time alone, but us also being so right for each other in a lot of other ways. I mean, how cool and sexy would it be to reunite as better versions of ourselves in the future? I just can't count on this outcome because who knows what will happen. So I guess I'm asking, how should I navigate through this breakup? Is it okay for me to go to sleep dreaming that one day we'll get back together in the future? Should I hold out hope or should I just stamp out all hope and move on? We were so close to perfect. How could I possibly ask to find someone else? It's not you, it's me. I'm not in the right place for a relationship. I have to focus on my career or schoolwork right now. Right person, wrong time, variations on that theme. People say that when they end relationships with people that they like, that they have no intention of getting back together with. It is often a white lie. It is often a comforting fiction It is not always a white lie. It is not always a comforting fiction, but it almost always is. So when you're on the receiving end of, it's not you, it's me, now is not the right time, I'm too busy for a relationship, you have to assume that it's over and conduct yourself accordingly. That doesn't mean you can't live without hope, that maybe if the planets all align, you'll get back together again in the future. And I think the odds for you two, based on your description of the relationship, the odds that you two will get back together at some point in the future are higher. But how do you conduct yourself? Are you going to wait around? How long are you going to wait around? Two years, five years, 10 years, six months, 60 years? How long is too long? 
And you may, if you wait and live in hope for two or three years, find that when you do get back together, he's grown and changed in ways that make him not someone that you want to be in a relationship with. Or you may wait for two years and at the end of the two years, he, because he was out there finding himself, is now with somebody else. He began to date. It's probably one of the things that he wants to do now that he's single for the first time in his life, living alone for the first time in his life, is date other people. You should do the same. It is perfectly acceptable to date other people while you're carrying a torch. Sometimes it's meeting another person that extinguishes the torch that you've been carrying. So there is a risk here that in two or three years, he may circle back and want to get back together with you. And in that time, you met someone else that you love, that you love more, someone who extinguished that torch, someone you've made a commitment to, and you don't want to get back together with him. Basically, you can't predict what's going to happen here. You don't want to sit at home, pining, waiting for the phone call that may never come. You have to get on with your life. That is the risk he's taking here in ending this relationship, a relationship that makes you both happy. The risk he's taking is that if he ever wants to get back together with you, there's no guarantee you'll want to get back together with him. Doesn't mean you can't be sad. Doesn't mean it wasn't a loving and terrific relationship. And you say it seems like a sad and unsatisfying end. Well, some ends are sad and unsatisfying and ambiguous. And it's only years later that we look back and realize not just why the relationship had to end, or we look back at a relationship that had a sad and unsatisfying ending from the perspective of the relationship we're in now, which may not most likely won't be with this person that we had the sad and unsatisfying end with and are grateful for that end because if the relationship we were in then hadn't ended, we wouldn't be in the relationship we are now. But you can't predict. We can't know how this is going to turn out. And I say all of this to you knowing that my mother – was dating this guy who ended things for very similar reasons. He'd recently gotten out of another marriage. He and my mother got very close very quickly. He ended things because he wasn't ready to commit. And then a year or two later, they wound up back together. They wound up getting married and being together for the rest of my mother's life for a couple of decades and changed. So I know that it can happen. But what you have to know, and the assumption you have to act on here is that it's unlikely. So you got dumped. Have your sad, eat your ice cream. I would usually say join a gym, sweat a little, get out there with friends, get under somebody else. Of course, those things right now aren't available to you, but have your sad, get online. If there are other guys who are interested that you can Zoom date for the moment and then begin to date in person, you should. Don't wait forever. Don't be paralyzed. Go ahead and be sad though. It is sad. Hey, Dan. So I'm a 44-year-old hetero white male. The problem I'm having is I've started dating a a woman that's 14 years younger than me, and I really like her. You know, everything's great, but our sex drive is completely different. Um, She would like to have sex pretty much every night, and I'm kind of a -a once-a-month guy. A lot of that has to do with my antidepressants and my bipolar meds. I mean, I enjoy sex. I like to have it. But at the same time, my drive is not nearly going to be what hers was. Before I was on the meds, I would definitely have sex way more often and usually 
self-medicated by having dangerous sex that I shouldn't have had. So I'm trying to figure out a good way to explain to her what the deal is without causing problems. And I know I can go to my doctor and get everything adjusted and try for the best. But I also know this works for me now. I don't like the person I am when I'm not on my meds. I don't like how it affects me. My um, depression becomes terrible. My mania becomes even worse. I like this woman. I don't want to mess this relationship up. But at the same time, this might be a real issue. Sex is great when we have it. It's just, you know, you want it when you want it. So you haven't told the woman that you've only recently begun seeing that you are on meds for depression and bipolar disorder? Or does she know? I, I have. She knows. I, I've definitely told her. I just think like when we first started, you know, the excitement, the adventure and everything like that. And now that we've been together for a while, you know, the, the bipolar meds are kicking in and I just don't want to have sex as much as they do. And is that a problem for her? Does she feel frustrated and rejected? Is it something that she said you two are going to have to work on or that's going to have to change for her to stay in the relationship? Uh, she, she's she been frustrated. She hasn't said we have to work on it to change our relationship. It's just one of those things where I'm, this has been an issue in the past mm-hmm. and I'm trying to figure out how to avoid it becoming an issue in the future because I've, you know, I've always felt like I communicate this pretty well, but maybe, you know, people hear what they want to hear. You, li- you listen to the show, right? You wouldn't be calling into my show if you didn't listen to my show. I, I love your show. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, thanks. Um, not, <laughs> not fishing for compliments, but a mixed matched libido, somebody with a high libido, somebody with a very low libido, that's a sort of baseline disqualifying example of sexual incompatibility, unless there is an accommodation or a workaround that both parties find acceptable. Right. Yeah. And yeah, sometimes I know when there's somebody who's a once a week person with a three times a week person, you know, the person who's less has a lower libido kind of ramping it up a little bit can work, but an everyday person with a once a month person, that's an engine of that's going to drive a lot of conflict in the future as resentment and frustration for the lower libido part, or, you know, re- as the resentment and frustration of the higher libido partner grows, as I'm sure you've heard us talk about yeah. in the show endlessly. And the only accommodation that I think really works when you've got a once a month with a once a day person is an open relationship. Uh, she's not interested in that at all. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I do have an appointment with my doctor later on this month. I was thinking about asking about trying to, mix it up a little bit, at least try and I can do once a week. It's not ideal, but I can do it. You know, obviously I I enjoy it. It's just not my goal, but I feel like if I can get there normally, you know, it could help. You say that your depression was severe and you say that when you were in the grip of your bipolar disorder, that your mania was very destructive. You want to be extremely careful about your mental health and about the medications, you know, Obviously, you're going to talk to a doctor before you you try different medications, but to find the meds that work for you and to land on those, um, you know, sometimes sacrificing some of your libido for your sanity is rational and the right thing to do. And so I want you to proceed very carefully if you're going to adjust your meds to try to ramp up your libido. If you can make it to once a week. How do you, how do you feel about assisted masturbation? How does she feel about assisted masturbation as opposed to? Uh, 
sides. You know, sometimes the, you know, the low libido partner, you know, helps out, you know, does what they can do in the moment while their higher libido partner basically masturbates and they're there to make it a little hotter, maybe a little bit more intimate, but not a tremendous amount of physical demand or expectations being placed on the lower libido partner in that moment. That can work if the higher libido partner is satisfied with the assist as opposed to full engagement and sex. Uh, we, we've done that, definitely. Uh, she's been very accommodating, honestly. I think a lot of it has to do with my my feelings of guilt and not wanting to fuck the relationship up also on top of it. You know, it's never any cycle, you know? Mm-hmm. You, you feel guilty because you can't do it, so then you try to overcompensate. And so right, uh, maybe I'm right now jumping eight steps ahead. Maybe this is something that will naturally work itself out as the relationship progresses, or maybe it won't, and I'm going to have to swallow that pill sooner rather than later and just accept it it's just one of those i want to make sure i'm being as crystal clear to them at the beginning so they understand mm. versus they feel like i'm lying to them down the road right and that's part of the reason i called you was yeah i don't want to be accused of being a liar in this situation right the, the working itself out in the end that means it, it has any hope of working itself out you're gonna to have to talk it out you have to negotiate you're gonna to have to really be open and transparent with this about your low libido and the likelihood of it remaining low, particularly compared to hers. Now, there are plenty of other potential partners out there in the world who are once-a-monthers or once-a-weekers, right? That's why yes. we get calls from people with higher libidos complaining, or, you know, expressing their frustration, not complaining so much, like they want to try to make it work, and that's why they call me to try to figure out how to make it work, but, you know, who are in a relationship like yours but from the other side, so you have other potential partners out there if this relationship doesn't work out who might be a better match for you libido-wise. And sexual compatibility is important. And I, I, I get in trouble sometimes. People get angry at me sometimes for saying you have to prioritize sexual compatibility. But it has to be prioritized, particularly in a sexually exclusive relationship. If you're the only person that she can turn to for sex – and she's the only person that you can turn to for sex. Sex has got to work. That doesn't mean work perfectly because no two, no sexual relationship is perfect and nobody gets everything they want out of one sex partner. People don't get everything they want out of three sex partners. People who are poly and have more than one partner also don't get everything they want. But you guys got to get closer and then get to a place where you've both paid the price of admission. Maybe you're being a little more sexual than you would be otherwise hopefully not more sexual than you're comfortable being. And she's getting less sex than she would like. Some assisted masturbation folded into your sex life, more solo sex time by herself that she's not resentful of you about. Then it might work. And who knows if you can make it work in the short run, most people in open relationships were closed for a very long time. So the fact that she's opposed or you're opposed, uh, maybe both of you are opposed right now to openness that's an accommodation that would allow you two to remain together now doesn't mean that that isn't something that you could talk about at least three or four years down the road if you stay together and everything else is working and this still isn't. All right. You give me a lot to think about. Okay. Good luck to you. And, and, right, thank you very much. And, uh, and, and I wish you the best, however this plays out. All right, thank you. Goodbye. Bye.
Hi. Um, I am a 30-year-old woman in Canada, and I am just wondering, I have been in a relationship and uh, married for just over eight years, and we have a couple of kids together. Relationship-wise, things are good. We're parenting young kids, and I'm just wondering... In the bedroom, we were both raised pretty conservatively. Um, we were both raised with the idea of uh, waiting till marriage uh, to have sex. So we were both each other's first partners. Um, we did get married quite young. And in the bedroom, still many years later, my spouse is having a difficult time being able to get me off. He seems to go pretty quickly. I mean, we're talking a minute or so. And he's not able to get me off at all, whether it be oral or vaginally, um, nothing. So I've tried suggestions, I've tried tips, I've tried books, I've tried a lot of different things. But the only way is being able to, when we are intimate together, is to be able to do that and get myself off at the same time as him. But that's me doing it and not him. Do you have any suggestions on how to move this forward? I don't want this to be the reason why I'm usually just not in the mood for sex. I really just don't want to be intimate because it just seems like it's a lot of times about him and not myself, even though he is, because he's trying. So I'm just not sure where we go from here. I don't want our love life to be very dull or plain. Um, I like to spice things up, but pretty traditional. So do you have any suggestions for him or I just so that I'm not sitting here another eight years later wondering if I'm just going to be getting myself off the rest of my life? You say your husband goes down on you and can't get you off through oral or vaginal. Maybe he's inept, bad at oral, or not invested in a real way in your pleasure. But if you're having vaginal intercourse and you're expecting him to get you off through vaginal penetration alone and not having to touch yourself while you're being penetrated, not having to stimulate your own clit while you're being penetrated, and he isn't perhaps dexterous enough, deft enough to stimulate your clit and vaginally penetrate you at the same time. It may be equal parts his ineptness or lack of investment in your pleasure and unreasonable expectations on your part. Most women can't climax from vaginal intercourse alone. They need sustained, direct, focused clitoral stimulation to the head of the clitoris, the exposed part of the clitoris, in addition to vaginal penetration or concurrent or in place of vaginal penetration in order to climax. I often tell women who think that their husbands or boyfriends are doing something wrong because they're not getting them off through vaginal penetration alone and who don't want to touch themselves, who feel like then they're just masturbating during sex, to watch a little gay porn Get online, watch a little gay porn, and every time a gay guy is getting fucked in the ass by his male partner who gets off at the same time, they're having sex, they climax together, it is invariably because the bottom, the guy who's getting fucked, is stroking himself at the same time, and that is getting off together. That isn't the top, the guy who's doing the fucking of the guy who's getting fucked, is inept or bad at it or not invested in the pleasure of the guy he's fucking. It's the fucking that's giving him pleasure and he is stroking himself he is playing with what is really the gay bottoms giant clit right the same tissues that become the penis become the clitoris and ta-da when the gay guy is stroking himself during sex he's playing with his clit all right you should be comfortable playing with your clit during vaginal penetration you say he only lasts a minute so he has endurance issues. Maybe he's a premature 
ejaculator. Well, then he doesn't get to start fucking you until you're close. Maybe you have to work with his premature ejaculation. If you have the kind of relationship where you can talk about these things, maybe you need to have a conversation with him about the point of orgasmic inevitability, that moment when he's going to go over the falls and him learning to approach that moment to sense that feeling coming and then back off a little bit before he comes, before he ejaculates and manipulate that moment of orgasmic inevitability, delay that moment of orgasmic inevitability by being himself more conscious of its approach. And then maybe he can last a little longer, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. You might be able to build up, but you will still need most likely to touch yourself during vaginal penetration, if you want to climax at roughly the same time, if not simultaneously, to him getting off. You've been together eight years. This is how his dick works. And you might just have to work with his dick. This may be just how your pussy works. That masturbating during partnered sex while you're rolling around isn't a failure on his part. You have nothing to compare himself to. He is your only sex partner. Maybe he just can't touch you in the right way. Or maybe you're one of those people and those people are out there who really does have to touch themselves during sex in order to climax and get off. If I could assign you to go sleep with 20 other men and figure it out, I would, but I can't because you don't want to open your relationship because I don't want you to cheat on your husband 20 times to figure this out. You may just have to accept the way his penis works eight years in, and you may have to accept the way your clit works, the way your junk works eight years in, and figure out how to make those things, his thing, your things, work together during partnered sex without resentment or judgment or accusations or, or an attempt to assign blame. Now, when it comes to spicing things up, when it comes to negotiating around what's on the menu, if he is unwilling, I will assign blame to him there. If he's unwilling to be creative uh, about sex, to, to really engage and play and, and shake things up, that's a problem. And you should present it to him as a problem that you want to solve together, but a problem of his creation, something that he's going to have to move on particularly if he expects to be your only sex partner forever. You should be invested in each other's pleasure. You should be realistic about how that pleasure, defining climaxing right now in this moment as that pleasure, you should be realistic about how that pleasure is achieved. A lot of great and good sex are two people rolling around, engaging in penetration, engaging in oral sex, but ultimately in the end having to finish themselves off. Sometimes that's a learned habit that can be unlearned. Sometimes that's just how that person's junk works. Maybe how your junk works. And you may be less frustrated with your husband and with your sex life if you accept that. If you accept that this may be, doesn't have to be, but might be how your junk works. And then the next time he's going down on you, the next time he's performing oral on you, Maybe incorporate some self-stimulation into the oral. Maybe instruct him. Are you instructing him? When he is paying attention to your genitals, when he's going down on you, are you giving him constructive feedback in the moment so that he can better pleasure you orally? And if you're not, why aren't you? Are you inhibited or is he not receptive to that kind of input? If you're inhibited, disinhibit. If he's not receptive, well, then you're going to have to put your foot down. You're going to have to insist that he listen and hear you. 
And eight years in, it's not too late to insist like that. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old queer woman on the West Coast, and I am calling with a question about sperm. My partner and I are uh, wanting to have a baby, and she is a woman, and I am a woman, and therefore we have no sperm. And we are wondering about the best way to approach friends and friends of friends and acquaintances about getting their sperm to have a baby. Uh, how do you start this conversation? And how do you do it with like legal stuff? Yeah, what are the best ways to make it not super weird, but also get the sperm you're looking for? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Diana Adams is a lawyer serving LGBTQIA polyamorous and non-nuclear families with a boutique law firm serving New York clients, and she's executive director of Chosen Family Law Center serving low-income clients in New York and New Jersey. Hey, Diana Adams, how are you? I'm wonderful. Glad to be back, Dan. Thank you for coming back on the show. I've been asked for my sperm a couple of times by uh, people who wanted sperm, uh, by women who wanted sperm, by cis women who wanted sperm to make babies. It's always awkward. It's an awkward conversation to have. And at the same time, as somebody who helps as a family mediator and lawyer, helping people decide whether this kind of fit is right, I think it's really important that whoever your donor is, is somebody that you can have frank, potentially awkward conversations with. This is somebody that you need to have good communication with because you need to be able to trust that this is a person you're going to be able to come to and say, hey, I have extra paperwork to sign or to talk about the awkward logistics of, so am I going to invite you over to a dinner party and then you jack off in my guest room? Like, what's the plan? You know, these are awkward conversations. You need to have a level of comfort with the person and you want them to be a person who is going to be emotionally grounded enough that they have a sense of themselves and good boundaries enough to say, no, I don't think that'll work for me. Because this is really, it, it's something that is difficult to predict how someone's going to feel. If there's somebody walking and talking or who looks like them, and maybe if they don't have another child, especially, that can really make them feel a sense of attachment that they might not expect. So you want this to be a person that you feel comfortable, would have a good sense of themselves to make the decision, would have good boundaries about saying no, and would be a person um, who would be able to come to you and say, hey, I feel uncomfortable. I'm having a hard time. Let's talk about it. It's funny. There's a little parallel here in that, you know, when we talk about open and closed relationships, we all know what a closed relationship is. We all know what monogamy is. Uh, but when it comes to an open relationship, you know, there's so many different ways to define an open relationship. Similarly, when it comes to a known sperm donor, there's so many different ways to define that relationship. It can be parental. It can be uh, uncle it can be a glorified babysitter. There can be no contact. It can range from anything from very intimate co-parenting to, you know, here's my sperm, see you around. And you have to be clear about what it is that you want so that other person, as they're making that decision, knows what they're opting in for. And, and sometimes it has been my experience, sometimes people aren't clear about that. They're afraid of getting rejected so they're not clear about what it is that they want. And this applies across the board, sexually, relationships. People are so afraid of being rejected that they'll sh shade what they want or obscure what they want. They won't be direct. And if somebody doesn't want what you want sexually, out of relationships, certainly in this instance, you want to be direct so that they do reject you if what you're proposing isn't something that they're comfortable with. 
Absolutely. I think that this is all about that kind of direct communication. And particularly when there's a child involved, you really need to be clear about what your expectations and needs are. I work in many situations where people have screwed up by not having an experienced lawyer mediator actually help them navigate this. Because what's really essential is not just the piece of paper that you sign, but the conversations that go into it. Like you couldn't just sign somebody else's will and have it make sense for your life. And similarly, you can't just sign something you download off of the internet and expect that to work. Because part of what you're talking about when you navigate this is having somebody facilitate those awkward conversations about... What do you actually expect? Let's get more clear. When you say you'll see him sometimes, it's important that the donor not think that means he's invited to dinner every Friday for Shabbat and that you think it means he's invited once a year to the birthday party because someone's going to get hurt, right? And so you need to be clear. Let's talk about the legal stuff. What legally can, uh, you know, a a couple, you know, two cis women in this case, and a sperm donor, a cis man presumably, what legally can they hammer out that protects the rights uh, of both or all three parties or all four parties. So in this situation, you want to make sure that you talk to somebody in your own specific state, because this is a nebulous area of law still that is not consistent state by state. It's a little bit like same sex marriage was um, in the nineties where you had some places where you could get married and some places had a domestic partnership and somebody else defines domestic partnership differently. And in some places it's a civil union. So you really need state specific advice Uh, But what's really essential is that you find that LGBTQ lawyer in your area. There's lots of great resources like the National LGBT Bar. I can make a referral from my firm. Um, And and get clear on what the requirements are for your state for a written agreement. Because in some states, they're not going to cut off the potential for the donor to be the father unless there is a legal second parent. Why? Because the state is cheap. It doesn't want to have a social welfare state. So they want to be, they're concerned if a woman is having a baby... Who is paying for this? Who is the other parent that's not the state? Right. Europe is fine with saying, okay, we'll pay for this woman and her child. But in the U.S., because of that, if there's just sort of mom and a girlfriend and a sperm donor, there's this nebulous question of who's going to be that second parent. The law loves for there to be a second parent implied. And you know, if mom falls on hard times and needs child support from the donor and says, well, he kind of comes around a lot and acts like a dad, that, child, that, that donor could be paying child support he never intended. And similarly, could get visitation rights. So you just really need to make sure that you not have something that's well negotiated that talks through those different issues before you get pregnant. Because the law is always concerned that you had an accidental pregnancy and then you signed the donor agreement later. You have to have intended for this to be a donor agreement before the conception, if possible. That's going to make it a lot stronger. So I'd say, you know, while you're navigating this, when you think you want to do this, before you've even um, you know, gotten out the turkey baster and had the inception party, uh, you want to make sure that you have talked to somebody about what's really essential and decide for yourself what level of legal risk you're willing to take. But okay. as for that initial conversation, I've been on the receiving end yeah. of it twice. I've been asked twice uh, to, be a, to be a sperm donor. And I passed both times because um, my then boyfriend, now husband and I were contemplating adoption and we had sort of conflicted feelings about, you know, us having an adopted child that we're parenting and us having biological children mm-hmm. and, you know, what zap that might put on our adopted kid's head or, you know, the zap might put on our head. So we passed both times. But each time we were asked, once by friends and once by a next door neighbor who slipped a note under our door after seeing us move in, apparently liked the way we hefted couches, 
uh, <laughs> it was awkward, but it was weirdly flattering. And we had constructive conversations over a bottle of wine that were awkward. You know, we're talking about us jacking off into a cup in the next room or whatever. So you can't avoid the awkwardness. I think just acknowledge this is an awkward question. I'm going to ask you something that's awkward. Invite the no. I think that's important in so many areas, relationships, love, romance, sex. Open the door for the person to reject you uh, so that if they stay in the room, you know, they really want to be there. This is a case where you can say, you know, asking a lot here. We can talk about it. You don't make a decision. If the answer is no, please say no. And it'll be awkward to hear no, but we'll power through it and our friendship will recover. But it's going to be awkward. If the, if the caller is curious how do you have this conversation without awkwardness, the only way to avoid the awkwardness is to not have the conversation. Yeah, it's going to be an awkward conversation. And so I think that what's essential here is to think about this as a person that you feel actually comfortable with enough to navigate a potential um, intimate process. You need to rely on this person in some ways. Uh, you're choosing to not use a sperm bank. You could use, you know, drop $5,000 and buy sperm out of basically a virtual catalog online. But in this situation, you're choosing to use somebody that you know, not only hopefully because it's cheaper, but maybe because you want there to be a person you can call if you want to say, hey, our seven-year-old is having a strange, you know, potentially genetic illness. Would you be willing to come get a blood test? Um, mm -hmm. You want there to be a person who's going to, if you want your wife to do a second-part adoption, who's going to be responsible enough to show up and sign paperwork when you ask him to. You want this to be a person that you have some level of comfort and trust with. And I would suggest using that kind of person more than the neighbor that you slip a note to, because this is really something that's legally a bit nebulous. You have to really trust each other. And then I think sometimes people with these awkward conversations tend to get a bit tipsy because they, when they feel awkward and that's not the right move when you want to have a serious conversation. So just inviting a space and letting the person know what you're looking for. And as you said, invite the no. Say, you know, this is a big ask. Maybe think about it. How about you let me know if you're interested in talking about it further? And we'll speak to some other people too. So you think about it. If you want some resources, let me know. And if you're, whenever you're talking about scrambling your DNA together with somebody, if you want a high degree of involvement from that person, you're going to want to make sure, if you want them to play some sort of parental role, even glorified babysitter, you're on the same page about religion, about education, about what part of the country you're going to live in. There are cases where there's been a known sperm donor who was informally and unofficially and nothing was signed, not going to be that involved, who sued for custody, who prevented the couple or, or the individual that they you know were the donor for from moving out of state when they wanted to move out of state. So you want to cross your I's and dot your T's here right? and make sure everything legally stranger, is sorted. Exactly. If you're using a complete stranger, I would um, get the money if you can, if you have the privilege to, to use a sperm bank because I think it's too much trust to... Uh, in a legally nebulous area to put on somebody you don't know very well who's just the cute bellboy at the hotel you work at or something. Um, those situations can work out, but I have unfortunately been part of a number of situations where I'm not doing the initial negotiation. I'm doing cleanup after the fact where mm -hmm. there's sort of a messy negotiation that where it's not clear to everybody whether this person's a donor or a dad, you know, they'll say, uh, I'm, I'm helping this couple out to have a baby, but they don't really get clear about it. They do conflicting legal things like have him sign the birth certificate or give him, give the baby his last name and yet also download a sperm donor agreement from the internet. Those two things legally conflict. Um, you, you know, it's just muddying the waters there or they'll act inconsistently. So maybe the donor acts like a dad when he wants to take the kid to the park and show off the cute baby, he's a dad. But when it comes to showing up for anything responsible in terms of responsibility, he's just a donor. He's, he's bailing out. And the mom sometimes 
conversely, we'll say, you know, you're a dad when it comes to the childcare, but when it comes to a vote on private schools, you're just a donor. Those are the situations where people ultimately have a combustion moment. And unfortunately, I've been in part of cases where there's a, there's a traumatized five-year-old who feels like their dad abandoned them if the donor disappears. So you really, when there's a kid involved, you have a responsibility to get really clear with each other. And so this is the first step on embracing awkward conversations. I suggest a greeting card. If, if somebody is going to do a, a neighbor one, I have an idea. Roses are red. You're a kind hunk. Will you be my donor and give me some spunk? <laughs> hey, can we keep you around for, for one more question? Yes. Hi, Dan. I have a sort of a monogamous under duress question, I guess, in the new year. I am someone who identifies as polyamorous um, and I've previously been in polyamorous relationships. But a couple of years ago, I got into a relationship with someone who is um, is monogamous. And, you know, we had conversation about uh, how he wasn't interested in polyamory. And I I was in, in love enough that I, you know, agreed to not be polyamorous anymore. And in fact, I cut off a relationship with someone that I was had been in a polyamorous relationship with. And while I'm still with my monogamous partner and we're still very in love and we live together and we have a lovely life together and uh, that's all going well. Um, but I just still, in particular, the person that I that I cut off the relationship with, who I'd been in a polyamorous relationship with before, I still, I'm still in love with him. And we don't see each other very often. You know, we don't talk very often, but we do still keep in touch. And my boyfriend, a monogamous partner, is aware that we do keep in touch. And, you know, occasionally I'll mention to him that someday I would like to see this person again, you know, and he's still not comfortable with it. He still, you know, hasn't... It's still not something he's open to, so I respect that, and I keep my interactions with my former partner uh, pretty platonic. But my former partner sent me a message, a New Year's message, you know, saying I miss you, and and uh, you know, I it's just kind of pulled in my heart, and you know, I told him I miss him too, and uh, and I just wonder, I don't know, do you have any advice, you know, thoughts for someone? like me who, you know, it's been three years since I gave up that polyamorous relationship. And I don't know, how do, how do I talk with my partner, uh, my monogamous partner about being open to me rekindling something with this other person, this person that I was in the relationship with previously, we have kind of a on again, off again thing, you know, we, uh, we love each other, but you know, we go f- for long periods of time without seeing each other. You know, he's really not a threat when it comes to the kind of stable, long-term family sort of relationship that I have with my boyfriend. But we are in love, you know, I, I think that. And and I do want to have that kind of relationship that we had before. Monogamous under duress is one of my uh, expressions. Uh, often when it comes to polyamory, a lot of healthy, functional polyamorous relationships where both people are happy in the relationship and happy to be in a poly relationship. It was one person's idea initially. Most of the people I know in open or poly relationships, those were monogamous relationships once upon a time uh, and they were opened up. But this is a little different. You know, here's somebody who was poly who shut it down. That's what that's how she describes it. Shut it down for this guy. She loved him so much. She was willing to be monogamous for him. Now she seems to regret that decision. This is a really common situation for me as a family mediator. I'm personally polyamorous. I serve lots of polyamorous clients. 
And one thing I've seen in my community and in my um, client work is that people often have a real shame as poly people in just asking for what they really want. And what I see sometimes in family mediation is that one party who's monogamous will say, well, she used to do that, but you know, she's grown up now. She's ready to commit, you you know, Mm -hmm. sort of use that kind of judging language. And then, and the person who's poly doesn't feel like they can speak up about what they want because they get shut down. Every time they try to bring it up, there's put downs about it. Maybe they have some shame about asking for that. Maybe it feels like they're asking for too much. I think sometimes I've seen poly people end up wasting a lot of time um, in relationships where they're like, this is great, but it'd be great if we were poly because I'm really poly and that's important to me. So, okay, well, well, I'll wait for three months and then check in. I'll wait for six months and check in about it. I'll wait for a year and check in about it. It's like if, if you're a woman with a guy and, and who doesn't want babies and you want a baby, you know, don't think he's going to change his mind. Take people at their word, you know? I, I want to back you up on that and, and declare, you know, get on the same page about polyamory or monogamy at the start. And if you are not compatible around relationship models, around poly or mono, you shouldn't be together. But then I look around in my, you know, my own life, my own experience, but the lives of other people I know who are in open relationships, they weren't always open from the start. And many of them were, you know, default monogamous for a lot of straight couples I know, or they opted into monogamy for some of the gay couples I know who are now non-monogamous. And then they worked their way toward polyamory. So just saying, you know, uh, somebody who would rather be in a poly or open relationship should never partner with somebody who demands a monogamous relationship. My husband wanted a monogamous relationship. We were monogamous for the first four years we were together. And so if I had that standard, I wouldn't be with him. And so I'm reluctant, but maybe, you know, it's 25 years later. Maybe there's more space for this now and more understanding of it than there was then when I agreed to be monogamous under duress for him. So, so it just doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me to tell people never, a poly person never agree to mono, a mono person never agree to poly because so many people, so many couples I know worked it out, figured it out and are now happily one or the other, even if it wasn't what both of them initially wanted. Am I making sense? You are. And, and I think, you know, you are very fortunate that that worked out and you may be particularly persuasive, Dan. I don't doubt it, but I think, (laughs) I think in, in many cases it's a challenge And I think that there's a few options here. You know, I have that initial hesitancy, but then with that, I know a number of couples who even identify as a poly-mono couple the way you might identify as a cis-trans couple. That Think about this as a part of yourself and that one person identifies as monogamous, one person identifies as poly, and you support each other in that. And that one person is able to go be poly in a certain uh, defined way. That sometimes is a possibility. I think then also it's worthwhile to get into more specific conversations and invite that specific conversation of, hey, this is actually really important to me and I want to talk about it. Maybe even we talk to a poly-friendly couples therapist about figuring this out for ourselves, have some facilitation, have a family mediator. And in that way, further define what kinds of relationship boundaries you want to have. Because even monogamy and polyamory, that's not a one-size-fits-all. You know, people define monogamy in different ways. You can define your, your non-monogamy in different ways. And so I would get at the root of what is it that you don't want to experience in polyamory? If you imagine that this is me going out and being promiscuous or spending a lot of time with other people, we could, I don't have to do that. What if this is, you don't want to see me with the other person. We can negotiate that. I mean, I think there's a lot of room here to get beyond just a uh, black and white zero-sum game of whether you're doing this. There's and, a lot of room maybe, here, but it, you know, 
but it is a little binary. Like it's an yeah. open relationship or it's a closed relationship. Right. And she doesn't think this guy is a threat, but if her partner is threatened by this guy, then he's going to experience this guy as a threat, whether or not she thinks the guy is a threat. Seems to me that for the caller, you know, she paid the price of admission to be with him and agreed to be monogamous. And now she wants to, three years in, ask him to pay the price of admission to be with her and allow for this other person to play a role in her life that's intimate and sexual and, and make space for that in their relationship. And that may not be something that he can do. You know, she's tiptoeing up to issuing him an ultimatum. Like, I, you issued me an ultimatum and I agreed to it. And I am withdrawing my consent to to, to, to your ultimatum and I want to renegotiate the terms of our relationship. He may walk away. He may not want to be in an open relationship of any form and no amount of reassurance will get him there, but he might not walk away. And the only way for her to figure, find that out is to issue the ultimatum, make the demand, ask him to pay the price. I think that, as you said, it's, it's possible that he won't want to renegotiate, but I think that we need to expect in all relationships that are long-term that we're going to be renegotiating terms. Um, Relationships are not static. Marriages are not static. You have moments where you revisit things. And so I would suggest that she let him know how important this is to her and be willing to at least have a conversation about what his concerns are. Because I think there's at least a chance and it's worth a try since this is so important to her. Mm-hmm. And I think it could actually be helpful to for him to hear the ways, if he's concerned about this being something which is going to replace him in some way, even if just abstractly he has an emotion about it, hearing the many ways that she never would want to be a nesting partner with this other guy could actually be helpful to reassure him. If he's worried about time, you can figure out the time thing, you know? So I think figuring out what his specific concerns are and seeing if there's any room there could be helpful. And it might be worth it since this is somebody she loves to, to get a professional to help facilitate that hard conversation. Early in relationships, a lot of people sort of regard sexual exclusivity as a marker for seriousness of commitment. And Mm -hmm. some years down the road, when you are really committed, they may attach less importance to sexual exclusivity. That was Terry's journey around non-monogamy. Diana Adams, a lawyer serving LGBTQIA polyamorous non-nuclear families and executive director of the Chosen Family Law Center. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 37-year-old gay male living in the Midwest and have a sort of unusual kink So my kink is that I'd love to have an erotic pen pal. Oftentimes when I'm on an app or, you know, meeting someone online, I get a really big kick. Uh, You know, it, it really gets me off to find out about their history or find out about, you know, their jerking off habits or finding out you know, about what they like to jerk off to, you know, I just, I like sort of getting into their head a bit more so, and love being asked, um, you know, the same, sometimes more so than actually the prospect of meeting the person. And so, you know, I, I've done a lot of research, tried to find out, you know, if there's sites devoted exclusively to erotic pen pals. And a lot of the sites that I found actually restrict, you know, that kind of content. And so, you know, I really do get off to being asked invasive questions, being, you know, grilled about my sexual history, my masturbation habits, 
what time I do things, you know, that really gets me going. And um, I'd love to find other people who are into the same thing. So short of putting a personal ad in a newspaper, no one will ever read. I was hoping you could give me a little bit of insight as to this and maybe some suggestions. That thing you're looking for, I've kind of stumbled into. I have a couple of dirty pen pals myself, guys I've never met that I now actually, after chit-chatting with them about our sex lives for a long time, consider friends. And I found them, or they found me on Instagram, on social media. I hope I'm not declaring open season on myself here. I'm sort of tapped out for the sexual pen pal friends, so please don't come at me now. I have no more bandwidth available for sex pen pals, because I've already got a few. But those relationships just sort of grew naturally out of chit-chatting and getting to know each other and sharing. If you want to start more explicitly, you should take a look at Reddit. There are tons of sexually explicit subreddits, and if you look around on sexually explicit subreddits, you will find a lot of people posting about what they were looking for, but also taking their correspondence with people that they meet on Reddit to direct messages and then to... WhatsApp or their uh, phone numbers, exchanging phone numbers through DMs and finding whether or not they call them that sexual pen pals that way. So you want what I got? You want what other people are getting? Put yourself out there a little bit on Instagram. Put yourself out there a little bit more explicitly about what you want, what you're looking for on Reddit. That would be my advice. All right, before we get to your calls, let's read your tweets. Michael Raymond tweets, The person dating the guy 17 years her senior in episode 741 inadvertently came up with a new term for friends with benefits when she pronounced platonic as playtonic. Tom Lebo tweets, I'm glad to see the intersectionality on this week's Savage Lovecast. This podcast has totally opened my eyes and made me a less judgmental person over the past few years. I'm guessing this is a reference to my conversation last week about cuckolding and race with Michael C. from the excellent Keys and Anklets podcast. And while I rarely use the term intersectionality on the show, I like to think we managed to do intersectionality around here. So thank you for noticing, Tom. And finally, Mary Ann Ryan WDC tweets, Dan, please help me understand those who believe the pandemic is a hoax. Listen to today's podcast, and I can't remotely get into the mindset that allows this thinking. Do they think the entire planet is in on some scam? Marianne, they do. Some are just deranged conspiracy theorists, but a lot of them are just your run-of-the-mill conservatives. How many stories have we read over the last nine months about people, always conservatives, who dismissed COVID-19 as a hoax, and because they weren't wearing masks or physically distancing, they caught it, and then they go crying to People Magazine or The Washington Post. Now that I'm sick, I killed my mom. I know it's real. Don't make the same mistake I did. Conservatives, man. No moral imagination. No empathy. We see it again and again. Your kid is gay? Fuck your kid. My kid is gay? Now I support marriage equality. You have a drug problem? Go to jail. Fuck you. I have a drug problem? Treatment, not incarceration. You have COVID-19? It's a hoax. I have COVID-19? People need to take this health crisis seriously. You tased your balls? Tasers are a hoax. I tased my balls? I die of a heart attack. Ugh, it is endlessly frustrating. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast, and now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I just want to echo your frustration with people who don't believe anything until it happens to them or someone they know. And I'm especially infuriated because I just recovered from COVID-19. And before that, I was 
one of those people who was always begging people to wear their masks, wash and sanitize their hands and distance themselves. And I was doing all these things. Even at work, I even had to beg management to make hand sanitizers available. And they made one cheap bottle of hand sanitizer available at reception. And then when it finished after two days, um, they refused to replace it because there was no money in the budget. It was it was only after I went to a work assignment where no one was wearing their masks and contracted COVID that all of a sudden there was money in the budget for a state-of-the-art disinfectant booth to be installed where everyone has to walk through it before they enter the building. Masks are now made mandatory at all times and there are at least three bottles of expensive hand sanitizer in every room in the building. Also, side note, you won't imagine the number of idiots, idiots in my social circle who called me when I was isolating and tried to convince me that this was a government hoax. And I was like, do you literally not hear me struggling for breath as I speak to you right now? It was maddening. Anyway, I say all that to say that there are idiots everywhere and this pandemic has helped to reveal some of them. There are people legit dying And these people think this is a hoax. So my advice to everyone is feel free to cut these people out of your life. And if you can afford it, quit your job if you're being put at risk. Your life isn't worth it. That's what I'm in the process of doing right now. Hi, Dan. This is a call regarding the woman in last week's show who was interested in uh, edge play, knife play, and gun play. As a gun-toting progressive liberal, I have to be really cautious about this. Do not ever use a real gun. You should always treat a firearm as if it is loaded at all times. You have some other options for realistic looking fake guns, things like airsoft guns, prop guns from movies and the like, but do not ever use a real firearm in sex. Please be careful and be sane. Hi, Dan. I'm the woman from episode 740 who was wondering if she should break up with her partner who had alcoholism. I wanted to let you know that when you characterized his lying and gaslighting behavior as emotional abuse, it really changed my perspective on everything, and it gave me the small push I needed to get out of that toxic relationship. In the time between my call and your on-air response, it came to light that he stole his ex's stimulus check, an ex who is a nurse and who probably needs that money more than most people right now. That was the nail in the coffin in a relationship filled with lies and risky and illegal behavior. Doing a breakup in quarantine isn't ideal, and surely pandemic loneliness will kick in any day now, but I can spend my time alone knowing that I'm not spending any more time on a relationship that was really bad for me. So, thank you. And a special thank you to the response caller who said she'd recently left her partner and was really happy. Your joy made me tear up, and I hope I can find that joy soon, too. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064 and leave a message. Or you can use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. My Dirty Little Film Festival Hump 2021 is right around the corner. This year, there are a variety of viewing parties to join. We will be streaming, including one with Hump Filmmakers, an all-nude viewing party for people who like to do things nude, and one with me, a viewing party with me on opening night, January 30th. That will be a fully clothed viewing party. Thank you very much. Go to humpfilmfest.com to watch the trailer, read all about the amazing new lineup of Hump Films, 
and grab your tickets. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Diana Adams on Twitter at Diana Adams ESQ. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. And next week, next week, we will have a new president. Whatever you do between now and then, don't daze your moments. 